Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new interview at New Books Network. I am Carmen Gomez-Ganisteo, and I have the pleasure today to have here with me Kate Christina Moore-Copy, who is the author of a very interesting book, Fairy Tales in Contemporary American Culture, How We Hate to Love Them, published by Lexington Books, and which came out last year in 2021. So thank you very much, Kate, and welcome for, and thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited to talk about this book with you for New Books Network. So I have to to start saying that I think it is great that um, you state early on in, in the book that you have this intention to to cite women, minorities, and let's say not the usual authorities in the field, so as to expand our horizons and also engage with fairy tales in a in a new way. And I think this is great because often uh, we feel pressure to to refer to the eminent scholars in our theoretical framework and women's other new voices that can offer a fresh perspective. So what do you think? You, you gain by, by citing these new authors apart from what you mentioned about expanding our horizons and a new, a new way to engage with, with fairy tales? So I think what I gain is a more interesting conversation. Um, the, I mean, the field of fairy tale studies is very fragmented, right? There isn't departments of fairy tale studies or a fairy tale studies conference, right? We're, we're fragmented across departments in German studies or French studies or English studies um, or film studies. Um, But the preeminent scholars, at least in the United States and in in English, have been sort of, have have been out of those departments, German studies, Italian studies, French studies. um, And um, they are mostly white people. And the stories that are being told and the new stories that are being created that are kind of still using the fairy tale building blocks are more diverse than that. Um, and so I was really looking for a greater variety of perspectives um, when I was writing this book. Um, and when I meet, say greater variety of perspectives, I mean both in terms of personal identity categories um, but also in terms of academic fields of study, right? I was interested in, in hearing what sociologists have to say and what children's literature experts have to say, um, not just the eminent scholars in the field who have published a lot on fairy tales. Um, have you faced a lot of criticism because of not citing more traditional respected works? Because sometimes it happens to me that I make the choice not to cite the the, the, the authorities because I want to to do what what you say to to offer new voices or whatever. And um, maybe then the the article goes into peer review and the reviewer says, "Oh, uh, yeah, but you forgot to cite somebody." And it's like, I know I have his book here in the office, but I chose not to. So did you face a lot of criticism for that? Not after I wrote that note about citation. Um, That note about citation at the beginning of of my monograph manuscript really came out of frustration with exactly that criticism. Um, I was hearing it um, in conference presentations. You know, I would give a conference presentation and then the Q&A would be, well, have you read so-and-so? Like, of course I have. 
Of course I have, but we don't need to spend five minutes of every 15-minute conference presentation citing the same big-name scholars. Um, and so sort of the, the frustration that I was feeling from Q&A sessions at conferences, from peer reviewers when I had sent out articles and when the, um, the prospectus of that book was reviewed, was peer-reviewed by the, by the press, um, right, like that frustration of getting that constant feedback as a call to cite the same four scholars over and over again, um, I just wrote that um, note about citation and put it at the very front of the book. Um, so it's right up front. You can't get to the rest of the book without going through that note about citation. And since I did that, um, I haven't gotten the same criticism. Well, well, it is nice that, that people actually read it because sometimes <laughs> it happens to me, we, for instance, we, with the students that the first day I say this, 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 and then <laughs> during the semester I get the same questions. But well, if it has worked and people have actually read it... <laughs> <laughs> it, it is good that they actually read and they didn't go directly to, to one chapter or, or whatever. So can you tell us a little bit about what the book is about? Yeah. So the book is really about the love-hate relationship that U.S. culture has with fairy tales. So as I see it, fairy tales dominate our media, our films, our books, our cartoons, even our video games. Um And we consume them voraciously. Uh, but we also condemn fairy tales and the people who love them. Um, and so in this book, I try to understand that contradiction, right? That tension between our consumption and our condemnation for this kind of same group of stories. Um, I particularly like the idea that, that, that you say that stories, fairy tales, and even family anecdotes, they are a shibboleth, uh, keeping outsiders at bay. And I do agree with fairy tales being a shibboleth because it happens to me, I am a non-native speaker of, of English, that I don't know many nursery rhymes for, for children in English because when, when I started studying English, it was supposed to be more more formal or whatever. So uh, those those I know I did have to, to learn because they weren't part of my of my all my childhood. Uh, yet many fairy tales are universal or pretty well known across borders, uh, such as Cinderella, Snow White, thanks to Disney movies. Because in, in a way, thanks to Disney, uh, American culture is our culture, is like global, uh, global culture. Uh, have you come across a fairy tale that was a kind of shibboleth because it was very specific of a certain culture? Because I remember before the Disney movie, for instance, I think that most of most of us in Europe, we have never heard of Pocahontas. Definitely in Spain, we have never heard about Pocahontas. I suppose that literary circles in American literature programs, yeah, because of John Smith and American colonial literature, but the general public, we, we have no clue who Pocahontas was. Honestly, I think... I think that kind of that kind of unfamiliarity with Pocahontas was probably shared by most people in the U.S. before the Disney film. I was thinking back to um, I was thinking back to sort of my childhood history education, um, and you know, Pocahontas was a small part in in the history of uh, in the history of the Jamestown colony as we learned it in school and. Um, Disney did something that where they kind of took this legend, right? This historical person who, whose life had like gathered some other things 
around it to create a legend about her. Um, and then they turned that legend into a fairy tale um, for, I think, for all of us. Um, but to address your question directly, um, I think uh, as I branched out, as I started to read more and more fairy tales um, over the course of my uh, over the course of my dissertation and, and writing this book, um, I was so delighted to meet fairy tales in other cultures that I had never encountered in sort of the Anglophone U.S. Um, canon of fairy tales. Um, one of those is Frau Halle. Um, so when I travel, I like to shop for fairy tale picture books in the language of whatever place I'm visiting. And when I was in Germany, I saw many books featuring um, Frau Halle um, across Germany. Uh, and I had never encountered her in the U.S. I mean, her story is is part of the Grimm's Kinder und Hausmärchen, and I, I don't know if she just was one of the stories that doesn't usually get translated by uh, U.S. translators, or if um, she just hadn't caught on. I mean, Disney certainly hasn't made a movie about her, but I also haven't seen too many picture books about her in English. Um, and so that's one in... Um, Kind of like she's in the Grimm's. She's in this group of stories that um, most American fairy tales are drawn from. But um, but she was new to me uh, when I was traveling in Germany. Um, the the Russian canon of fairy tales also has a different set of standard tales than what we're used to in Western Europe in the U.S. And so, kind of meeting those characters and and hearing their stories um, over the course of my of my study has also been really interesting. And given that, that you are teaching abroad, how is your students' understanding of the section of fairy tales similar or different from American students? Because of that, because of movies, uh, Disney movies, American culture is everybody's uh, culture, even if we were not born or raised in the USA. And uh, for instance, uh, as you say in the book, there are, for instance, many different versions of Cinderella. But uh, now, like we stick to the to the Disney one that is like the canonical or whatever. Because, for instance, I remember in, in Spain when Aladdin was released uh, here in Spain. Is always the adventures of Aladino. And many children say the, the, Las Aventuras de Aladdin because they have copied it from the movie. The movie is Aladdin. So, like, this is the canonical, the perfect one. And you can dissuade them because that is Disney and Disney is like set in a stone. So, your students, do they have a, a different reception or understanding of fairy tales? So, um, my students in the Russian Federation. Um, actually have a, a similar attitude, I think, to the students that I have taught in the U.S. Um, in terms of their consumption and their attitudes about fairy tales, certainly the stories that they know are different, um, but their attitudes towards fairy tales as a, as a category of story, I think, is similar. Um, they have a sense that fairy tales are something for children, and so they're surprised to find them in a college classroom. Particularly, my current students in the Russian Federation um, are at an elite private uh, institute that focuses on economics. So um, finding fairy tales from their childhood in a classroom uh, is unusual for them. Um Some of them are pleasantly surprised. Um, others are skeptical, but they kind of come around as we go through the semester. Um, and a few remain disdainful throughout the whole semester. But, 
But I would say that kind of those three categories of response are also what I've experienced in classrooms in the United States when I was teaching there. Um, so people sort of have their different baggage when it comes to the genre of fairy tales. Um, I, I suppose it also changes whether they are female students or male students, maybe, or not. Um, yeah, gender definitely plays a factor. Um, male students tend to have a little bit of misogyny or machismo kind of wrapped up in their response to fairy tales. So not so because it's something for children, it's also seen as as being somehow feminized. Um, and so they um, they kind of resist wanting to read them or resist liking them um, or admitting that they like them when we do read them. Um, women students uh, tend to fall into kind of a couple of categories, right? Some women students just love fairy tales and they're excited to have the opportunity to read them for class. Um, some students uh, have kind of bring the feminist idea that all fairy tales are bad and evil um, into the classroom. And so we have to spend some time kind of unpacking that that baggage. Um, so yeah, gender definitely plays a role. Uh, but I, you know, I taught uh, a fairy tales class that was in the United States, I taught a fairy tales class um, that was women writers. And so the whole semester was uh, fairy tales that had been written by women. Um, and the class was a class of 20 students. I think 18 of the students were women. There were just two men who were taking the class because it fulfilled a requirement at a convenient time. Um, and uh, they really learned a lot, I think, about about women and about feminism and about how to talk about issues of gender Um kind of outside of the toxic masculinity that's so common in the United States. Yeah, because that is something that I wanted to, 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 to mention to you, because I teach an, undergrad, an undergraduate course for education majors. And for instance, in, in class, I say, oh, you, you, you should uh, teach uh, young children making use of fairy tales. And do you think we should be uh, maybe monitoring the messages they transmit so that we don't give uh, young children maybe old-fashioned stories about gender roles, for instance, because that is something that concerns me with when I tell my, my students, because I say storytelling in general, and I don't know whether they are going to object to, to that because some people have the idea because now there are other books that are fairy tales for girls, mother girls or whatever, that they are going to tell me, yeah, but this is very old-fashioned and we are going to give them an idea of passive women waiting for the, the Prince Charming and this is not what we want our students to, to do. Yeah, I think, I think that we need to be... I think that we need to be critical consumers of the messages of all the stories that we're sharing with children. Um, fairy tale stories are certainly in that category, but they're not alone in um, in the danger that they pose, right? Um, but I think the best thing that we can do with children and fairy tales is lean into the malleability of fairy tales as a group, right? Like. As we've mentioned in this conversation already, there isn't just one Cinderella, right? There are many of them. Um, there isn't just one Rapunzel. There are whole bunches of them. And so by, by reading a variety of adaptations, by making multiple different versions of the stories available in the classroom, um, I think we can help children see how they can make these stories their own um, and how they can... Um, 
they can engage in the stories or play act in the stories or respond to the stories creatively in ways that, um, that change the story into what the children need it to be. I think we can also encourage kids to identify with characters who are unlike them. Um, so anyone can be the princess, right? It doesn't just have to be the, the, the cis women in the class, right? Anyone can be the princess um, and anyone can be the knight. Um, I also think one thing to kind of keep in mind is the, the most recently produced fairy tales, um, including some of the Disney Pixar movies, tend to be pushing the boundaries of traditional gender roles a little bit. I think of something like Brave, um, which, you know, has a marriage plot, right? The, you know, her father wants her to, to choose one of the sons of the other, the other clan leaders to marry, but the, but the movie ends without a wedding, right? Um, what it comes down to is, is kind of a rejection of that, that traditional marriage plot. Um, and so I think it's important to recognize that, that even now the fairy tale stories that are current for our students are, are starting to push back on these gender norms. And so we can, we can encourage them to engage with the new material and we can encourage children to engage with um, older material, the more traditional versions of the tales um, in innovative ways. Um, how can we define fairy tale? Because for some people, it is the the, the animated the animated movies. For others, the, it is like Hans Christian Andersen, the, uh, the Green Brothers. There are people who think that fairy tales are are actually book print books, not not, not movies. As you were saying the, before, the idea was the, the the wedding at the end of the of the movie, the happy ever after. But now uh, we have fairy tales that they don't have a wedding at the end. So. What is a fairy tale? What does it need to qualify as a fairy tale, even if at the end the princess doesn't marry the, the prince? Because I have also heard people complaining, uh, for example, Pocahontas, is, is she a real Disney princess or not? Because she's a Native American princess. And, uh, so. so my definition of fairy tale is, is capacious, and it is big enough to include lots of things. Um, and it's based on... It's based on kind of a structural theory that comes out of Vladimir Propp's morphology of the folktale. Um, and um, in that definition, I see lots of things being fairy tales. So I would include things like contemporary romance novels, romantic comedy films, even Star Wars. You know, the first movie, um, I guess, episode four, uh, is a fairy tale. Um, and what this allows me to do is to look at stories that are very different on the surface and to see how they might be using similar building blocks um, in innovative ways. Uh, and so that's what I'm always doing, right? I'm looking for the ways that uh, a fairy tale story is um, using these same building blocks that we're all familiar with, but using them in innovative ways. So in these stories like Brave, like Moana, like Frozen, like Tangled, that end without a wedding, um, I ask myself sort of what, what is the function of the wedding in the fairy tale? And the function of the wedding in the fairy tale is, is kind of the, 
the continuity of the family, right? It's the establishment of a new family unit and the continuity of the family line. And I think in stories, both like Brave and Moana, the conflict is not so much about marriage. It, the end of the movie doesn't create a new family. But in both of those cases, the end of the movie restores the family of the the hero and the parents, right? So Moana and her father, um, Merida and her parents, and her parents with the, Merida's parents with each other, um, instead of seeing a unification of a prince and princess as they start a new family, we see a strengthening of existing family ties. Um, so we are still getting a happy ending of sorts. It's just a different sort than what we're used to. Uh, and I think that's interesting to think about. And I think we should be thinking about it more. And you have a whole section on Cinderella, and you mentioned in, in in chapter in chapter seven, you actually mentioned that that uh, you um, that uh, you wanted to devote more space maybe to 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 other works. Uh, tell me, um, wh why do you think that the Cinderella story is more popular and productive than than, than others? And uh, do you plan to devote another book or an article to Snow White or Sleeping Beauty? Yeah, my dissertation committee talked me out of a second extended tail type analysis when I was uh, designing this project. I was pretty sad to let it go in the moment, but I think that they were that they were probably right for the purposes of this book. Um, I think part of why I was able to give Cinderella so much attention is that a lot of work had already been done to catalog. Cinderella stories around the world by people like Marion Rolf Cox and Anna Bukita Ruth and R.D. Jameson. So I was able to sort of stand on their shoulders, right, and build on this cataloging work that had already been done. I'm still very interested in Beauty and the Beast. Um, I'm particularly interested in the different ways that different versions of the story define what makes beauty beautiful and also what makes the beast beastly. Um, so I don't have anything in the works right now, but I think if there was, if I were to undertake another kind of extended look at a particular tale type, Beauty and the Beast would be the one. And, and I would be looking at those, um, those changing values as we move from one cultural space or time to another cultural space or time, right? What does it mean to be beautiful? What does it mean to be beastly? And how does that story end, right? Because Some stories end with beauty recognizing the beast's value without a change in his appearance, which is really interesting. Um, and some stories end with the beast sort of physically transforming into a prince. Um, so those are the elements that are most interesting to me in that story. Um, it's difficult to say why Cinderella has been so productive. Um, I think in the U.S. we keep telling the Cinderella story um, because our U.S. versions of that story have aligned her with us, right? The American Cinderella is good-hearted and hardworking, um, and that's why she's rewarded, right? She's rewarded for her long-suffering hard work, um, and that's the American dream story, really, right? If you work hard, if you do a good job and you work hard, then you will prosper, right? It's the story that um, people in the U.S. tell ourselves about our own society. Um, and so kind of Cinderella 
reinforces that uh, American dream story. So I think that's why it's been so productive. And that's why it was such an important story to focus on in this book about the relationships of U.S. culture to fairy tales in general. Because I think of all of the fairy tales, kind of Cinderella is our central one. And it's the story that we that we keep telling the most often in the U.S. Uh, you also write about the Disney live action movies that they are based on, on their own animated movies. And for instance, they have, there has been a lot of debate online that I have read about the casting of an African-American actress to, to play Ariel in the, in the new movie. And people think that it is not faithful to the original, but the original, as you say, it, it can also be uh, from Hans Christian Andersen. It's not the Disney movie. Why do you think that people feel so strongly about changes in, 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 in a movie? Because uh, there are a lot of web pages on the internet and uh, Facebook posts on Twitter and everything. Yeah. So, you know, one aspect of this is that people have always felt strongly about the inevitable changes that come with adaptation. Um, some of that is nostalgia, right? The books that we read in childhood and adolescence are um, powerful memories, And the memories that we have of those books and movies are tied up with, for some of us, the sense of safety and simplicity of life that we experienced as a child, right? So, you know, for people who saw the, the Disney animated Little Mermaid um, in the theaters as children, right? Like that movie is tied up with the feeling and the experience of seeing it, Um Halle Bailey's uh, casting as Ariel, like, has all of that kind of tied up with it, but also some nasty white supremacy cognitive dissonance. So in her book, The Dark Fantastic, my colleague, Ebony Elizabeth Thomas, analyzes the role that um, Black characters, uh, especially Black female characters, tend to play in fantasy fiction. Um, and she looks at both books and movies and television. Um, but the role that she identifies, most commonly played by um, Black female characters, is the role of the mysterious and menacing other, who is often killed um, in order to resolve the conflict or in order to further the plot. So... The character of Ariel is the central figure of the story of The Little Mermaid. She cannot be the dark other in the story. She can't be the dark other who dies, right? The dark other character in The Little Mermaid is Ursula the Sea Witch. Um, so even though the people who are on the internet complaining about this casting probably haven't read Thomas's book, and they likely couldn't articulate anything like what I've paraphrased from Thomas here, um, that theoretical framework describes the expectations that these people have. And this casting challenges those um, expectations. Um, As I write in my chapters about Brave and Enchanted, fairy tales are generally not radical agents of change. They index the conversation forward by taking us on an adventure that challenges familiar norms, and then fairy tales reassure us with that happy ending that we've been talking about. But we've been on the journey, and we're not going to unexperience the journey. We take that journey with us, the experience of the journey with us into the happy ending. 
So this casting of, of Halle Bailey is, is likely to be participating in that fairy tale tradition of, of moving a, a, an important conversation forward. Um, I'm really interested to see what they do with this casting in the film. Um, is it in the tradition of kind of colorblind casting where it, she's, a, she's a black actress but that blackness is not addressed in the movie at all? Or are issues of race going to be sort of consciously raised in the film? Um, I think I certainly don't know that. Uh, I don't think it it comes out in any of the trailers or the still photos that we've seen. Um, I guess we'll all know more uh, in the spring when the movie is available. I am looking forward to, to watching it because it is my favorite Disney movie. So I'll be there. <laughs> For, for sure, to 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 cheer or to criticize or, or whatever, but I'll be there at the other theater for for sure. So thank you very much, Kate, for for being here to speak about fairy tales in contemporary American culture, how we hate to love them, published by Lexington Books. Thank you very 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 much. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to talk to you today, Carmen. Thank you very much. 